You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hamburger, hamburger, hamburger to go, six figures. In the top floors of a New York City brokerage, one of the most prestigious, a grown man was shouting, hamburger, hamburger, hamburger to go. But he wasn't hungry. Hamburger meant McDonald's, 100,000 shares and to sell. And on that day, Monday the 19th, 1987, Everything was for sale. Today is Black Monday, the day the Dow dropped more than 500 points. Fifty-five thousand Pepsi to sell. Sixty thousand GM to sell. Hamburger, hamburger. Thirty thousand J.P. Morgan to sell. I thought pandemonium set in when JFK was assassinated in the middle of a trading day. A longtime seller of securities said that wasn't it. This is the real pandemonium. Everything is out of control. Said another. Computers were freezing. Phones get mm, busy signals. Human voices needed lozenges. It's busy and people are on edge. The prices this Monday morning were just dropping, and nobody was on the other end to catch them. As I say, I don't think anyone should panic. In one hour, 140 million shares are sold. They can't get rid of the stocks fast enough. Today, the Dow dropped more than 22%, almost double the rate of the Black Monday that signaled the beginning of the crash of 1929. A precious metal brokerage in New York City runs out of coins to give to anxious customers looking to put their money into something else. Panic starting in Tokyo this morning while the West slept. It didn't take long for New Yorkers and news crews to figure out the whaty-what, the scale of what was happening. Not just a New York crash, but a worldwide crash. People crowded the Fidelity office downtown New York with faces pressed up against giant glass windows, peeking. But there was nothing to see, and people inside didn't have much more information. It was some of the hubbub of 1929 mixed with silence. Screams of Jesus Christ as cell hoarders come in. One firm doubled securities at the doors, anticipating trouble. Michael Lewis, the author, talks about how he rushed between the 40th and 41st floor of a skyscraper where his equities firm was. A lucky man on the 40th floor had made $20 million, but most people were not doing that. I heard the Brooklyn screams, he said, of, Yo, Joey! Hey, Alfie! What are you doing, Mel? Bellucci! You can buy 20,000 phones at a half! AT&T, at half price. Another fellow looked at the Statue of Liberty, and you have to understand, as he's looking at it intensely, he's a recent immigrant. Phone in one hand, eyes on the lady. He had made a fortune in America, and now he was losing it as somehow the market quite arbitrarily everyone in downtown New York felt 
was deciding that the $1 trillion corporate America was only worth $800 billion. The traitor looked at the Statue of Liberty through the glass windows and shouted, Four F-bombs in rapid succession. In another office, a black computer screen with bright green letters. A Wall Street Journal editor writes the headline of the day. The market suffered a great loss today over 500 points and hits enter. No, strike it. Backspace, backspace. The market crashed today. Before he submits, he checks the dictionary for the definition of crash. And then he checks with his editor. It's a go. New York has the best high tech that you can get at this time. Telephone equipment is the best. Blinking lights, hundreds of worried clients calling in. Just like in 1929, they couldn't always get answers. Charles Schwab, the most popular investment firm, the stuff of 1980s television, was having a phone system meltdown. Unable to talk to their panicked customers. You might not be able to find a computer in a hospital, but you'll generally find one in a brokerage office or certainly in a trading floor. The world wasn't computerized yet. There was no popular internet, but the Wall Street area was wired. The Quotron device started as these small machines that would be on brokers' desks, look something like a calculator. By the time you're getting to the 80s, there's 100,000 of them in various offices around the world. They're just known for their black background, green, bright digits. Tim Metz in his book on... um, Black Monday tells the story of a broker with a client of $100,000 in portfolio. He's wanted to sell for weeks, but the broker convinced him not to yet. And now it's Monday the 19th. He's at the broker's office and the broker says, okay, if you want to sell, you have to sign a hold harmless agreement. The broker's Quotron device is on a rotating disc and He slides his finger slowly and turns it away from the client. The customer signs. And only then does the customer ask, by the way, how was the market today? And the broker simply says nothing, but turns the Quotron back towards the client. Who sees the number for the Dow and faints and ends up in an ambulance. That one will make all the regulators' reports. 14,430 telephone complaints will be made to the SEC about Black Monday. You still have a few scenes you might see in 1929. Horse, traders, shouting, lots of typing machines working overtime, clearing the day's business. But on Wall Street 87, you had the most computerization. And so it was a huge experience and stress mixed with isolation. An actor, Richard Barris, had put his whole savings into stocks. He races down to Wall Street to see his broker. He can't get him on the phone. He can't find him in person either. A reporter interviewed Helen Kurtz of Florida. Her father lost everything because he had to cover lost margins in 1929. I remember what a terrible thing that was, Kurtz says. Now, she was a teacher, and she had saved her money in the stock market, and here in 87, feared the worst. By noon, the market was down about 150 points. The tape delayed by more than an hour. But it only got worse as trading brokers struggled to cope with a blizzard of sell orders. Lucky men who had car phones pulled off the side of roads and tried to call their broker. 
A man rode down Wall Street. Down with Reagan. Down with MBAs, he's shouting from his car. By 10.30, the Dow Jones is down 101 points. Huge then. At this point in 1987, the Dow Jones is only 2,100. At 11.45, small hope of a quick gain. 30 points. Some of it is lost immediately. Treasury Secretary James Baker is in Germany. Get him back here, comes the order from the White House. The chairman of the SEC says the market might be shut down. He has not consulted with the exchange president, and his comments will cause more selling. One trader said, in my 30 to 40 year career on Wall Street, I have never seen the pandemonium. I just remember them wheeling carts of sandwiches on the floor because nobody could leave. What blew me away that day was as we left, late that night, I tried to leave the exchange and there were so many reporters outside the exchange sticking microphones in our faces. We couldn't even get it to the subway. In other parts of the country, they're reacting to the panic. In San Francisco, a panic broker says, I surrender. In St. Louis, a financial head leads his men in prayer. A Texas broker is trying to persuade his clients with spin. You know... A fast death is better. Indeed, the market's percentage decline would be the largest before and the largest since. That's the important thing to know about October 19th, 1987. It is the most dramatic one-day experience, not 9-11, not the 2008 recession, not even coronavirus would beat it for a single-day decline. It would cost hundreds of billions of dollars. Among the people losing money, Sam Walton, the owner, chairman of Walmart, Loses $2 billion today. I see stocks trading 10 points below where they traded Thursday, and I'm saying, this, has, gotta be, this has to be the bottom. And then they trade five points lower than that. It would scare businesses. It would scare leaders. It would scare politicians and the average Joe, many of them new investors, seeking the promise of quick money in the go-go 80s. It would befuddle a president. It would confuse a Fed chair in one of his first days on the job and nearly bring a 90-year-old market to bankruptcy. It was a one-day event, but as we're going to get into in what's going to be a two-part series, it really is at least a two-day and probably a whole week event. But you'll mostly hear about Black Monday. New Mexico, we have some more here to do. Since the market hit a high of 2,722 last August, it lost 17.5% of its value to 22.46 by Friday and another 508 points today. And what I find interesting, most interesting about this day in 1987, as I researched it more, is the curiosity seekers, people who are coming to see 1929 unfold. They're hearing about it on the radio. They're hearing about it on television. And New York's a place where you can jump on a subway and check things out. You can get into New York fairly easily if you're not in a car. And they're getting down there to see. It's a crash. I want to See what it's like, Harold Snedkoff, one of many who came down to New York, said. He had no stocks. He was a fundraiser for the New York Public Library. He thought he'd see people going nuts, running around, shredding paper. I don't know what they do, jumping out of windows. But it's no different, really, than any other day on the street. There's no raging or panicking. The windows are pretty much sealed. Maybe... It would be good, Harold thinks. Maybe people will think about other things than making money. Maybe they'll think about how to cure AIDS. Heather Walker, 27, also lined up to see the New York Stock Exchange at the Spectators Gallery, which is packed today. I want to tell my grandchildren I was here. 
But she does worry. All of this lost money. Even in good times, men are scared to propose. An enterprising pub, the North Star, features a spontaneous 20% crash special. But just like the markets, few buyers are interested. They're too busy settling trades and staring at blinking cursors. A couple of curiosity seekers do go to the bar. Gregory Downs was a law clerk. He had few stocks, but he told a reporter he wanted to come down and see the crash, see traders drowning their sorrows. The only broker there was a bond broker, who was actually having a pretty good day as people sought relief from the stock market in the bond market. Sunday in Melbourne, Australia, Melbourne's small stock market used a chalkboard on a catwalk over the trading floor, but the chalk message was indisputable. Markets were down. Black Monday 1987 didn't come as a total surprise. There was talk over the weekend that there would be a crash. The the markets didn't do that well on Friday. There was saber-rattling between Treasury Secretary James Baker and Germany and other governments in Europe over the trade deficit. There was threats in Congress, Dan Rostenkowski, ways and means, talking about new taxes on buyouts of companies because there were so many during the 80s, scaring investors a bit. Tokyo opens next, and whew, ouch. The Nikkei falls from 26,366 to 25,746. This is on an index of 255 stocks. 2,000 traders clamor in a brand new Kabuchko exchange building. In Hong Kong, traders wear red waistcoats at the stock exchange. But the bright colors don't change the mood. The Hang Seng is down 130 points. It is headed for its worst loss ever, and officials are about to close it. London. Everybody already knows London will fall because there are back orders to sell. Friday, there was a windstorm. Trades couldn't get to the exchange, but those trades were sell orders. Now they get there, leading one trader to say, the end of the world is nigh. 604 million shares would be traded. That's not a lot today. That's a lot then. And it's interesting to see how history affects the interpretation, just as it would today. They were looking back at 29. A new word comes in the news, recession anxiety. A lot of the news stories today are going to lead with, are we entering a recession? Analyst Faith Popcorn, popular at this time, talks about how there could be a yuppie glut coming out of 1987. Yuppies are compulsive spenders, and they will be compulsive non-spenders, you will see. President Reagan does not speak on the events in the market. But it's down 300 points by 2.15 in the afternoon. Spokesperson Marlon Fitzwater says, The underlying economy remains sound. There had been continued growth through the 1980s. It didn't seem real. 1929 led to the Depression. Why wouldn't this? A lot of people are losing money. Would the 90s be a new 1930s? And you go through a long, quiet period. Uh, The people that got out don't want to get in. The people that want it again and aren't sure about that, whether they want to get in now, as you go through a long, quiet, a convalescence period. Ten years of stuck in the mud? Reagan's men try to talk it down. This is, there's not a one-to-one relationship. Alan Greenspan, no one's calling him maestro today. He's in Dallas. He's speaking to a bunch of traders and brokers, and they have, the reporters have questions about this, and really there's little for the newly minted Greenspan to say on this day. He does very little. 
He'll end up reassuring people later. He'll reassure the bulls he won't act too much and the public that he won't act too little. He'll manage the risk. By four, it closes. 508 points down, which will be the lead in newspapers. 604 million trades. It will take four hours for all of the collective paperwork to be counted. President Reagan issues a statement at the end of the day. I don't think anyone should panic because all the economic indicators are solid. The New York Stock Exchange chairman calls it a meltdown, but says, These things usually exhaust themselves. Do any of these things apply to you? Are you feeling anxiety? Are you having trouble sleeping? Are you stressed out of work or at home? Look, everyone will tell you, you have to talk to someone. Oh, yeah, like that's easy. We're at home all day. There's a better way to do it. You can chat with a therapist on your phone, on your computer, securely. No one knows. It's BetterHelp. That's our sponsor today, BetterHelp. You can connect in a safe, online environment. No one needs to know about it. It's so convenient to do it that way, and you can start communicating in under 48 hours. They have licensed professional counselors specialized in stress, anxiety, depression, anger, family conflicts. You can send a message to your counselor anytime. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling, and financial aid is available. So, my history can beat up your politics. Listeners, I want you to start living a happier life. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting our sponsor at betterhelp.com slash beat up, as in my history can beat up your politics, betterhelp.com slash beat up. Join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health. That's our sponsor. Be sure to support our sponsors. Risk is what commerce is about, right? Anytime you engage in a transaction, we, we've, we've got it down so many of them, or you just go and buy milk, or you buy gas, a little risk there. Anytime you engage in transactions, there's a little bit of risk. That's commerce. That's what we're talking about in this final arc of commerce, which will be in two parts. It hasn't been a complete look at commercial history. It's been more of a partial one. It could be a whole podcast. Someone could take this off and take it from me and do the arc of commerce themselves. I just wanted to make sure there's representation for all different types of history, including commercial history. I've learned a lot doing them. And I've learned about the intersection between politics and commerce, and we'll be talking about that. Today, we'll talk about risk, what chances are, and the most common attempt to counter that risk which is the insurance industry, central to the narrative of Black Monday because it tells a story. But it's a story of what? Is it just a one-day event? People have kind of forgotten about it. It's become just a piece of nostalgia with the old computer systems and things like that and people's suits and ties and things that they wore. Some people did cover in one day, some in one week, but the market didn't. It took a full year to get back to its levels. And new scholarship suggests that the problems of 1987 were present in 2008. We're going to talk about that in Part B. And still around in forms today. In fact, perhaps accelerated today. 
So we'll talk about all that. We'll talk about risk in stocks. We'll talk about risk in fire, in war, and in broken eggs. Whether the chicken or the egg came first, we don't really know. We do know that American commerce has both as prized articles of trade, and that new methods were developed to get around their unique properties, and for eggs in particular, that is, that they are protein-rich and can really back up a grain or rice-heavy diet if beef or pork is not affordable or available. But eggs, they break. They're of a limited shelf life, and they don't just come out of a factory. There's a certain animal that has to do that work, and there's a certain way that chickens operate. I won't get into the biology of this too much, but hens tend to lay eggs in the spring. So 19th century America was oversupplied with eggs in the spring, and supply was scarce in December. And people adjusted their appetites. And if they didn't, pricing took care of that. The few eggs that you could get in December were priced high. They were priced lower when there was more supply in the spring. People might do the same thing now with specialty products like farm-raised tomatoes or organic food, you know, that you actually have to get from a farm and still be stuck in those cycles, but generally we're not in the products we eat. It seems a little weird to us today, only being able to get eggs in the spring. But something else happens, and we talked about this, a mark of commerce through the railroad after the Civil War. Um, on the Ark of Commerce episode three, where we talked about the railroad, land travel, land-based commerce, mostly railroads, after the Civil War. Eggs that could be grown in ubiquitous farms in Illinois, Iowa, Nebraska, and Minnesota could be sold now not just in those places and not even trucked to a big city like Milwaukee or Chicago, but by rail to hungry Brooklynites in New York. And it helps. You don't need a huge investment to start an egg farm. It's something the average household can do and make a little money on the side. It's a nice little business. You can you have to buy the chicken, of course. And in that situation, the chicken always comes before the egg if it's your farm. Uh, and this is a very common thing you'd see in magazines, people advertising, hey, start an egg farm, make some money. There's a whole Sherwood Anderson story in 1921 that's published about a father trying to get rich quick, essentially with an egg farm business and various things he does with the eggs, like trying to, you know, add some showmanship and, and, and things like that uh, to start a restaurant and other things. And he's not successful. And it's a story of the American dream. But the whole point is that it starts with a husband and wife trying to start an egg farm. It's much earlier, though. The trend that is still present then starts in the Midwest with giant Chicago at its center. Chicago supplies the Northeast. The hog butcher of the world had already mastered meat distribution, and railroads and egg sellers came up with a new concept called cold storage eggs, storing age eggs with blocks of ice in a rail car to keep it longer. Ships are also used. And in 1890, egg prices in France dive as ships from America with ice holes arrive full of eggs. 
Of course, fair is fair, and in California, we, America, is receiving eggs from China, depressing prices there. Yet, there are issues. Cold storage eggs didn't taste the same, particularly to old-timers. The eggs were flatter, perhaps less fresh, and they picked up the taste of what they were stored with. It became pretty clear pretty soon you wouldn't want to be storing eggs with garlic or with lemons unless you wanted your eggs to taste garlicky or lemony. Some old recipe books were so biased against cold storage eggs that they said you could use them in cakes, but they're not to be fried or eaten alone for human consumption. It was a dividing line between the generations eventually. Old-timers didn't like them. New generations get more used to them. And as electricity affords even an easier way to do cold storage eggs, beg it better. I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. We'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-Off launches April 9th. Duration. There's also something else that is going to start driving up the egg supply, and that is new techniques of hen raising, provoking hens to give birth in the winter by the way that they're fed. By 1940, two-thirds of Baltimore's grocery stores, for instance, have cold eggs available for buying. And you even see an advertising campaign that we're going to talk about that'll even tell people eggs are better. So one thing is clear. The cold storage methods, better or not, and the grazing strategies and driving production, U.S. production goes from 2 million in 1899 to 3.1 million. 2 million eggs in 1899 to 1 million in 1904 to 4.5 million egg cartons in 1914. And prices are dropping, adding eggs to otherwise eggless diets all across the country. The egg is now the staple of the grocery store that we see today. And as the egg business is booming, prices are gyrating with all of these new development. Chicago businessmen sell large amounts of eggs in the street, in big markets by the water. In 1870, a produce exchange is established at Clark and Lake Streets in Chicago to help facilitate sales of eggs and produce some transparency in all this pricing, some stability in the market, so farmers know what they can get and consumers know what they will spend. It also quickly fuels new types of sales. Maybe you didn't just want to sell 100 eggs that you had. Maybe four or 500 eggs that you had in a rail car. Maybe you could just sell a contract to sell those eggs. And the eggs will come later. I promise. Not new. This type of transaction, a future, was being done with wheat and cattle. But cold storage methods allowed you to do this now with eggs in an easier way. Farmer Smith, most likely not just Farmer Smith, but a group of farmers represented by Smith, could sell you Merchant Jones 12 dozen eggs 
or 1,200 dozen eggs in October at such and such cents. The sale is being made in April, but what you're doing is helping guarantee a market price at some stable price. So I have an incentive to put out these eggs. If there's no market in October, I still get my money. If they're down two cents, I pull out my contract for five cents and I deliver it to you and you have to pay me the five cents. This is a future. And you can also do options where I have the option to buy or sell, but I don't have to take it. It's innocuous enough in theory. But there are some issues, we'll see. And they've been looked down on at times. These instruments, these financial instruments, market techniques can drive up prices. Consumers always, time and now, have sort of resented them. They, because they hate high prices, let's put it that way. And will bug legislators then and now when high prices happen to. So a good futures market could drive pricing up when it should be lower, like in the spring for eggs. It might help stabilize in the winter months. But the good things are often invisible to consumers. They remember when the price of eggs goes up and not so much when it goes down. What's a commodity that, what's the biggest commodity we see this with now? I think for most people, it's probably gasoline, you know, going up, going down, and it's an impact on your life. Um, Cable, entertainment. I think there's huge inflation and fluctuation in that particular market. And I say that that as a podcaster, it doesn't charge you. but it's often unseen. But in any case, at this point, things like wheat and eggs are what are on people's mind, both the farmers and the consumers of them. And as of the 1870s, the state of Illinois, a key commercial market, would ban futures trading for a little while. And it's a big issue nationally. It's a huge issue. There are 200 bills in Congress in the late 19th century to ban futures trading. They don't stick, though. The Chicago merchants are a powerful force, and they answer back with the religious zeal of the free market. Speculation stimulates commerce. It creates and maintains proper values. Why speculation founded the Great West, and the Great West is the United States' prosperity. There's a statement from the exchange. Commerce, as we've seen, that's a statement from the exchange. Commerce, as we've seen in this series, can always become political. It's the whole reason that There's a reason to talk about it in the concept of politics and history. Selling things is not apolitical, even if every transaction isn't. Speculation wins in the story. Um, In 1895, the Butter and Egg Board of Chicago forms to establish good prices. And it's no longer just an exchange. Prices are displayed for all to see on a blackboard, and it's changed daily. It thrives in 1914 and employs a new weapon. Advertising, convincing skeptical old-timers and open-eyed youngsters that eggs served cold are nutritious. They're better for you. There's little evidence to support that. There's also little evidence for the skepticism about them, other than the perhaps the flat taste. By the 1920s, futures trading for eggs was the primary business of the Butter and Egg Board. It morphs into the Chicago Mercantile Exchange in 1919 to allow the sale of other products. You paid $100, you get references, and unfortunately we're talking about 1919. You have to be white, male, and Christian, and you join the exchange. The exchange clears payments between buyers and sellers of eggs and other commodities and guarantees deliveries of them. 
and we haven't touched on this, but the commodities markets pride themselves on this aspect. The delivery and the same-day payment must be made at the close of the business day. There's a buyer and a seller in a delivery time. The delivery must be completed, and exchanges issue stiff penalties for members who non-perform. No IOUs. That's part of the reason for a commercial exchange. Something that the markets pride themselves on, you know, as compared to this in the stock market, and we're going to run into this later, you can pay for your stock trades uh, as much as a week. You know, it can clear a week later on some of these large trades that are made. Not so in the commodity market, it must clear that day. And if you promise a delivery, egg deliveries in the future or pork bellies in the future, no. If you accept delivery, you're getting a train load or a car, as they say, of pork bellies. There's a real product behind it. With this system in place, egg futures grow from 70,000 cars, eggs, in 1925, from just 11,000 in 1915. And the rich egg man becomes a kind of architect, a dapper Don with his big hat and cane, whose fortune came from the work of dungaree-wearing folk. The butter and egg man is, is out there in people's perceptions, but there's actually a play called The Butter and Egg Man, a Broadway smash, whose protagonist is a hat and cane wearing butter and egg man who comes very well dressed from some Midwestern village, his name's Jones, to earn some money to buy a hotel in his hometown. He has money, but he wants more. He has $20,000, a lot of cabbage in those days, but he needs to double it to get the hotel. So what to invest in? A Broadway play sounds good. The producers of a play convince him to back their play at 49%. It plays in Syracuse, and the play bombs. The producers then convince this rich butter and egg man, a new friend of theirs, to buy them out, take the other 51%. Maybe it was all just a scheme to get his money. Well, Jones, the butter and egg man, turns it around and makes his play a smash hit. Now the producers want back in. And after the butter and egg man learns that the play's idea was actually stolen, he does indeed sell it back to them, worthless as it is, and gets his money to buy his hotel. Was the play the producers based on the plot? Well, the butter and egg man was a big hit. It's possible it was out there. But this time, the whole idea of this play is that this time, the usually foolish architect of the archetype of the rich butter and egg man wasting his money on silly things has actually reversed. Jones has actually won. And not only is Jones' fictional play a Broadway hit, but The Butter and Egg Man is a Broadway hit. There was this electrifying um, feeling about seeing people dart around, dash about in these uh, pits. It's not unusual that something from a market would enter the popular culture, enter politics. So... We've had market managers crow about free markets. We've heard in the, in the late 19th century what the Chicago mercantile people were saying, and even in the 1970s. As the Chicago mercantile exchange increases what it's doing and gets a new leader, Leo Malamud. And shouting and screaming at the top of their lungs, waving their arms. It, I mean, it was electrifying and, and captivating, at least for me. They were trading strictly agricultural products. And in fact, at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, those products were uh, butter, eggs, 
and uh, poultry in, in those days and onions. So it was a produce exchange, agricultural base. Who decides that he can use the mercantile exchange not just to sell butter and eggs, not just to sell pork bellies, but to sell money. Currencies around the world and American currencies and T-bills are traded. They didn't think the boys from Chicago, the pork and belly guys, could set up an international monetary fund. Malamud says, pretty soon there's a lot of action in the 70s in Congress about all of these commodity trading and futures, just like there was in the late 19th century. In the end of Nixon's term, you have Gary Hart, you have McGovern, um, you have senators who are looking at prices going up and looking at the markets as being capable, as being culpable. Malamud tells Congress in a famous speech, there is no exchange market in Moscow. There is no Peking Duck Exchange in China or Havana Board of Cigar Exchange, only in America. They turn that into a TV commercial for the CME out of his congressional speech. But Congress is watching, and they're seeking to have some type of regulation of all of this. For Malamud and others, futures tell you when prices will go up before you would otherwise know. You want to keep a futures market healthy. But not everyone's so sure. Didn't all of this future speculation lead to high prices? What about all the margin buying? Okay, if it was real buying of eggs, we could say, yes, you're establishing a real market. But there's all of this speculation and borrowed money that's entering the market. But even as there's more regulation of commodities, there's more expansion of the commodities that are being sold. Gold starts being sold by the Chicago Mercantile Exchange in 1974. And the CFTC, the Commodities and Future Trading Commission, was set up and designed as the regulatory agency to oversee commodities trade in the 1970s. It was shaky. It was underfunded. It was given a tight leash and an actual expiration date of a few years. But the CFTC earns its place in by finding a few scandals in the marketplace, things that traders had done wrong. And even though it's going to be in a turf battle with the Security and Exchange Commission for what to do about various trading, it does survive. A scandal of the 1970s in a different commodity, wheat, exposed to the public in a highly political way how the market could affect the price at the breakfast table. The market was tricked and consumers got higher cereal prices because of a mastermind of the market, who was a communist. In 1972, the Soviet Union, at the invitation and with the support, financial support from the Nixon administration, paid $750 million to buy American wheat. Keep in mind, that's $750 million in 1970s dollars um, just by... You know what? Let's look it up. Value of money over time. I got my chart because there's multiple ways to do it. Don't just... Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more... We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. 
Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You know, don't just look at the uh, one way to do it. D-million. If you look at it in terms of um, relative labor earnings, for instance, that's going to be $5.2 billion. If you just want CPI, that's $4.5 billion. There's other ways where you can get it as high as 12.6, depending on what you're measuring. And one of the simple ways that really does apply here, and I always have to bring this up about money over time because it's where history meets economics, right? Is that there aren't that many people who have $750 million. So it's not just a comparison to how many eggs you can buy, right, with an amount of money. There's just simply not as many pools of that money around. And one of them, of course, is the federal government. And another actually in the world at the time is the Soviet Union, who are buying things from abroad with the funds that they have. And that combo led to some buying on the market. In fact, they buy 25% of the American wheat crop in 1972. Nikolai Belosov and his team set up a room in the New York Hilton. And there they conducted trade with American grain sellers, huge sellers representing lots of already large agribusiness farms. For instance, Carhill and Continental Grain. Belosov, fluent in the English language, fluent in American culture, used futures and their huge volume to extract good pricing. They brought, they bought grain like you would buy a used car, said the VP of Carhill. They knew the market as well as anyone, said another. They also knew how to play one seller against another, something that they didn't have to do in their home country, not to mention something that they couldn't do in some other Western markets like Australia or Canada, where one agency bought the grain. Here in America, it was this company, that company, and the Soviets would tell each of these companies, this is our whole order. Give us the best price while they dealt with others. No one knew the total volume of the order. And they had information that the Nixon administration did not have. Grain was short in the world in 1972. Prices were going up. The Russians had already signed for 4 million American tons at $1.65 a bushel, when the price that American buyers would pay later in the year was $2.50 a bushel, and American government subsidies helped them buy it. This was not received well in the press. It was called the American Grain Robbery, according to Scoop Jackson, the senator from Washington, and it got political. Democratic Congressman Neil Smith of Iowa said, Nixon fell hook, line, and sinker. Or, as one grain company executive put it, the Russians... They were just very good capitalists. But we've been talking about eggs. We've been talking about butter, grain, even gold. Hard physical things that can be delivered. And as we mentioned, the pride of that Chicago exchange is that counter to the charges that you guys are just speculating up there. 
while real farmers are growing things. They could say, in the end of the day, we always deliver a product. There is a pork belly. There is an egg. Yeah, the financing rules might be moved around, but we're going to deliver at the risk of penalty that pork belly or that egg. But what if it were all changed? What if we replace that pork belly with a stock, a share of a company? What if we just said, instead of a train load of eggs, we'll just bundle stocks, like the Standard & Poor's 500 stocks, traded on the New York Stock Exchange in a virtual train car, promise to give you X many shares in October of this year at X price, no matter what that price is in October. That's what the Chicago Merck was pushing for, but it gets tricky. The New York Stock Exchange is where stocks are sold, not Chicago. And if it's a commodity of stocks, who regulates that? The SEC regulates stocks. It does not regulate commodities. The CFTC does, but it doesn't regulate stocks. This whole crisis is solved in the incoming Reagan administration in 1981 as the heads of the SEC and the CFTC meet at the Monocle, a restaurant in Washington, D.C. It's still there. Congressmen meet there over the deals that must have been made over a burger or a salad. And the new SEC chair and the new SFTC chair are part of an administration that must boost commerce. That is their message. They took over from the Carter administration. They're supposed to limit red tape and do it fast and work together as regulators to make sure the business flows. Now, it should be said, and I'm going to do a separate cast on it, that during the Carter administration, there was plenty of deregulation going on. But Reagan wanted more. Hamburgers, salads, and a deal. Chicago can sell stock commodity cars. But here's the thing. You don't actually deliver the stocks. You start delivering these stocks and they have to be sold. Now we have sales on the New York Stock Exchange. And now money's coming out. We don't want that. All you do is when the futures are executed, just give them the cash that they would have got as if they sold the stock. Nobody really owned a stock. It's a good deal. This is exactly what's okay for the SEC chair. And it's exactly what's okay for the CFTC. What they wanted couldn't have done better. Everyone's excited. Chicago Mercantile folks, certainly, they have a new product to sell. So S&P Futures open in 1982, sold in cars. You only have to put a small part of the payment down to buy that future. There's excitement, but there's also consequences that the people making the deal in the Monocle restaurant couldn't possibly have predicted. And it won't happen in that year. And it won't happen in the next. Thanks for listening to part A of the Arc of Commerce part six, risk. And we do have a Patreon site, patreon.com slash MHCBUIP, where you can get more content and help support the show. Thank you for the over 50 people who have uh, supported us right now, and there's many others on the premium podcast. I watch the stats on the podcast, and it shows that over, after a certain amount of minutes, people drop off, right? But listening to the whole thing. We're going to talk a little bit about risk in this section, and then when we continue in part B, we're going to talk about some of the things that caused 1987 and what it means for the future.
A voyage of a ship on a rough ocean. The appearance of pirates. The hurl of a football. By a hungry young quarterback on a high school field. The price of a stock yesterday and its price today. The popularity of a new app. All of these things involve risk and assessment of that risk for hope and gain. And there's many things of it. But a theory developed by two Israeli paratrooper-turned scientists covered in Peter Bernstein's Against the Gods, The Remarkable History of Risk. He talked about the pilots who debated whether or not it was better to reward performance or criticize performance. One pilot leader said, Whenever I give my guys a good review, they botch the next flight. Criticize, they always improve the next flight. But in reality, the pattern of performance varies each time, up and down, as an average is reached. It could be a high average, like a great athlete might show, or a low average. But people perceive performance as affected by factors, and studying that could be a goldmine. In other words, not just studying the performance, but how people perceive the performance is going to improve. Their prospect theory, what they called it, didn't have a great name, so they called it prospect theory, is based on the fact that human emotion wins rational thinking and self-control, and people can't think big generally. They don't know how all the information, they don't have all the information they need. Cognitive difficulties is what they called that. Too low a sample size simply in the human experience to really think that rationality is being calculated the way people think it is, let's say. We display risk aversion when offered a choice in one setting, then seek it in another setting. We pay too much attention to low probability events that have huge drama. Here's an example. How many times does K appear as the first letter of words in English? Does it appear more often as the first letter of words in English or the third letter? Did you say first? Most in surveys do. Not all. And maybe because the way I read this, you didn't. K is the third letter twice as often. It's easy to remember K as a first than it is to remember K as a third. That's a problem humans have. A computer wouldn't have that problem. But we do. Most of us do. So when information overloads, like with potential gain and loss, we are basically in trouble. Here's another example. Choose between an 80% chance of winning 4,000 and a 100% chance of getting 3,000. 80% chance of having $4,000 in your hand or a 100% chance I just give you the 3,000. Are you like most people? And I'll include myself in this. I want the certain 3,000 in my hand. Risk averse. That's okay. But probability says you gave up a mathematical 3,200 for 3,000. But okay. Let's say it's a loss situation. And we're not doing that to show how risk averse people are. That's not the idea. The idea is this. Let's switch it to a loss situation. A bad day at the stock market, say. 
How about an 80% chance of losing 4,000 or just a 20% chance of breaking even? All right, so that's one choice. 80% chance of losing 4,000, 20% break even. Or 100% chance of losing 3,000. Hmm, I know how I answer, and I don't want to influence you, but I'm going to reveal it. I want that 20% chance of breaking even, not losing anything. All of a sudden, us rational people in a loss setting become risk takers. 92% they found in studies take the spin on the wheel for that 20%, and they're most likely to lose 4,000. Mathematically, the loss is again 3,200. Should have just taken the 3,000 loss. All these scientists care about, by the way, is what people will do, how they will approach risk. Several other experiments, others involving death and risks of a healthcare program, policies on inflation. Most policymakers would take different tax on policy if framed in loss, in saving lives, or losing lives. One example goes right to politics. In episode five, we talked about measuring things. We talked about unemployment rates. They're a fixture of news stories of society. Everyone's an economist now. They can make or break presidents, the unemployment rate. Most people, of course, don't understand them. I got my unemployment down to 4%. My predecessor was at 8%. But if framed in a choice between inflation versus unemployment, people do different things. That is, in framed of terms of inflation versus unemployment politics, they'll enact Harsh policies, if it's framed as employment of 95% or unemployment of 5%. I've always been waiting for the president, the brave one, to go out there and say, the employment rate is 93%. I mean, Reagan did things like that. He didn't, but he never used the percentage number that I'm aware of. He would go out and say things like, there's plenty of ads in the newspaper. And he wasn't wrong, even when the unemployment was 7 or 8% during the recession of 82. Think of it this way. You feel a certain way today. It's easy to think of one or any number of things that could make you feel worse. But only a few could make you feel better. It's what the scientists call failure of invariance. People are inconsistent in choices. The information frame matters, in fact, for the bulk of people which most governmental or market decisions are going to affect, the information frame is everything. Advertisers know this. They only give you the positive information. They don't tell you, here's the monthly payments. <laughs> Why, we could take 600 bucks from your checking account. Do it for your family. Doctors at a hospital realized unintentionally when they asked a person to make a choice between radiation and surgery, the stats that they showed it would depend on whether and the, and the chance of them choosing one or the other depend on whether they showed the chance of success or life expectancy after. No patients died from radiation. Some did from surgery. But surgery gave me you more than a, of a life expectancy on average. When risk of death was put foremost, 40% chose radiation. When life expectancy is mentioned, 20% do. Theories of choice are incomplete. And this all is from the, the Great Against the Gods book. Uh, choice is a constructive, contingent process. People use shortcuts, they edit, they have mental boxes. But human choices are not so random, nor are they rational. They are orderly, though not mathematically rational. 
since we are not always rational about risk, diets, withholding taxes, limits on gambling, and insurance, Bernstein says, we accept a certain loss when buying insurance. That fee is never coming back, which is an explicit recognition of uncertainty. We employ those mechanisms and they work. Few people end up in the poorhouse as a result of the decision-making. A child is offered a lollipop, a small lollipop today, or a larger one tomorrow. Not all said yes, surprisingly, not all the children, to the small one today. It wasn't just like most kids say they want a big lollipop tomorrow. It all depended on family income, trust of people, if their parents or both of them were present when the question was asked. All these things affected the decision. But it shouldn't in a purely rational choice. But it does. A ship tossed in the ocean with 100 head of cattle moving back and forth violently. The moos could be heard, the creaks of wood, whoosh of the wind. Some old salty sea hands that have seen it all are even frightened at this one, as a later court document would show. She encountered the John P. Best encountered a severe gale about four in the afternoon. The sea swept over her into her coal bunkers, damaging the wheelhouse, carrying away the skylights, and witnesses say everything from her deck. But here's the tragedy. For some hours, the cattle had been going overboard, and as a consequence of the storm, and a large additional number were washed by the sea, which struck the vessel. It's horrible. Exactly what every shipper fears. 87 of the 100 cattle go overboard. But something else. The reason so many cattle on the John P. Best were lost is that the grain was improperly stored, not protected. It spills, and shifting the boat's weight so that it could not be righted to save the cattle. Well, the court gets involved with this John P. Best, and it becomes a case. It was not the storm or the incompetence that caused the John P. Best to lose its cattle, making delivery failure. An act of God, like a storm, would void a contract. But a mistake of that proportion brings up a question. Would any reasonable sea ship have taken that precaution of securing its grain. And if it didn't, that would mean the best owners were responsible. The judge finds a number. It's cold. He says, okay, one-third of the cattle, one-third of the cattle, which is 33, you are responsible for. Subtract the 13 head you salvaged. And you are responsible for non-delivery of 20 cattle. That part's not important. The reason that John B. Best had legal precedent is not that it lost cattle or the lack of responsibility, though it does tell you something about risk in so many hundreds of thousands of transactions that must have occurred in American history, probably in the same years that John B. Best. It was a bottomry case. A bottomry was a unique method of borrowing and risk, showing risk sharing, whereby a ship's master in part could attain needed capital for usually repairs, but also for other supplies in the absence of the ship's owner, just to keep the ship moving 
going and to keep commerce going. It goes all the way back to the Greeks as a concept. As the judge says, the ancient sea laws regard the master of the ship as a substitute for his owner in that owner's absence. As Ellen and Michael Kaplan in their book about bottomry say, it's easy to describe, but it's difficult to characterize. It's part a loan, but it's not a pure loan because the lender accepts part of the risk. It's not a partnership because the repayment was specified such as upon delivery of 100 cattle to South Haven, 100 would be paid. It's not a partnership. You have to make the delivery. It was not fully insurance because it did not secure risk to the goods. It secures risk to the ship carrying the goods. And it declined as a result of the telegraph because what was happening in so many cases, that's part of the decision in that John Best case, they had to determine if delivery had occurred of the the cattle or whether the act of God voided it because in port, the master signed up for bottomry of the ship, got some things fixed. Sometimes the master would get money for themselves and this led to a lot of fraud, which made it an unpopular system. And the owner was contesting that the master had done so. There was fraud in other ways. Because the bottom contract, you know, you might be in a port um, internationally, port in uh, Spain, say, and say this must be delivered to New York. And then some crews would deliver it to Charleston and say, oh, the wind got to me. And that voids the contract. Some owners finding out that their master had bottomed the ship would say they had no authority to do it and would have to go into court. The old bottomry system reduced the risk of shipping and enabled that commerce to happen before there were telegraphs, before there were well-funded insurance schemes. It was the earliest real form of insurance. Thanks for listening to Part A of the Ark of Commerce, Part 6. Hello all, Eric Rivenis with the Most Notorious Podcast here. Each week I interview an author or historian about a historical true crime, tragedy, or disaster. Subject matter ranges from gunslingers to Gilded Age murder to gangsters to fires to pirates to wild prison breaks. My guests bring their incredible knowledge directly to you. Please subscribe to Most Notorious on your favorite podcast app. Cheers and have a safe tomorrow.